0: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking.
1: In the Middle Ages, pilgrims made all kinds of journeys. Jerusalem was the big one, of course, but there was Chartres, there was Rome and Canterbury. It was dangerous at times, but it also had its special moments. Who wouldn't, after all, want to touch the bones of a dead saint? time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Fran Altvader talks about the medieval pilgrimage, a practice that became central to Christian Europe by the early Middle Ages and that eventually evolved into the military pilgrimages of the Crusades in the 12th and 13th centuries. Altvader is a professor of art history here at the University of Hartford and her book, Sacramental Theology and the Decoration of Baptismal Fonts, was published recently by Cambridge Scholars Publishing. Fran Aldvader, vader thanks for coming in today.
2: Thank you for having me. So,
1: I grew up in a devout Catholic uh, family, and so I got a pretty heavy dose of the Gospels growing up. Sure. And I don't remember travel being such a huge theme. You know, there's the story of Jesus in the desert, the temptation. There's, I think, in Luke, a story about him going to Jerusalem, but... It just was not a theme that we talked a lot about in Mass or in, you know, Sunday school. So where does the whole pilgrimage thing, could you talk about how that sure. happened?
2: Pilgrimage doesn't factor very much into the Gospels unless, you know, one of the things, the motifs that comes up for pilgrims as well are the the magi. Um, the idea of traveling Mm. to see the Christ child. Um, So there is a pilgrimage motif there sort of early on, but not really. um, It's really post-Gospels that you get that. And you get Paul's travels, the idea that Paul is reaching out to all of these churches, Paul on the road to Damascus. Mm -hmm. So I think for early Christians – That's a motif that they're looking at. For us, I think there's an element in which travel has become so much a part of our lives that it's nothing to travel from one town Mm -hmm. to another. It's even nothing to go two or three towns away to your nephew's bar mitzvah Mm -hmm. or your Godson's christening, um, so that there's this sense in which, you know, obviously you're traveling even for religious reasons. So pilgrimage kind of takes a back seat.
1: Whereas in the Middle Ages, travel was a totally different. Why don't, why right. don't you actually talk travel, a is, bit of-
2: travel? Is travel is a major sort of motivator, and I think also if you look at that early Christian element, there's this sense of. We're going to travel, and that will be a conversion moment for me. That will be, you know, end of my life, I will travel. And the next thing I'll do is enter a monastery or a nunnery so that I really can sort of cleanse myself of those lifetime of sins commit myself fully to the journey mm-hmm. and then close myself off from the world so that was also a motif in medieval pilgrimage and if you think of crusades um you know the idea of crusade as pilgrimage all other reasons for crusading aside the idea of pilgrimage to the holy land as a devotional act that will wipe out your sins and that you might not come home from. Mm-hmm. So this kind of completion in travel of your spiritual journey.
1: So who actually was traveling? I mean, were, uh, the impression I got from the the readings that I did on this was that it was not just an all-male thing. That-
2: no, there were female pilgrims. Chaucer gives us the best examples, but there are lots of female pilgrims in the early period. You know, they, they write about seeing bethlehem and seeing in going the experience of what it would be like to see the christ child in the manger at bethlehem mm-hmm. you know and they write about it in really visual terms so they write about sort of saying okay i actually see the christ child And their spiritual advisors, so usually women are not going alone. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going with a spiritual advisor. They're going, it's not quite, you know, let's go pilgrimage, but (laughs) it's, you know, essentially um, a guided tour. And, you know, their spiritual advisors are validating those experiences of living what you see, really bringing it alive.
1: So- Do you get a sense from the literature who, like, what class of people are actually able to make these journeys? I mean, I would imagine it's incredibly expensive, and certainly if you're going to Jerusalem.
2: Right. Part of what happens over the historical period is not only do you have sort of wealthy pilgrims who are making the big journeys, or in the case of Crusades, military pilgrims who are, even there, they're nobles' sons, they're second sons, they're people who can afford to go. But I would say that that's actually another reason that alternate pilgrimage sites develop, is that, you know, people want to go on pilgrimage, but can't afford Mm. to go all the way to Jerusalem.
1: And there's also, I would imagine, in the 4th or 5th century— when you still have an empire there... Right. ...that you can move around a bit.
2: A little bit more the facility of Roman roads, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That there is a trade system that's going from Western Europe to Eastern Constantinople. So that there's a sense in which that is really facilitated up until about the 6th century. And if you look at then the importance of Rome developing as a pilgrimage site, you know, be in the spaces where Peter Mm. and the disciples sort of develop their missions, um, the the church itself, and then looking outward to places like Spain, Santiago de Compostela, as a manageable pilgrimage spot, connect to St. James, and all the spots along the way where your journey becomes spiritually valuable.
1: Do you think, and as I was looking through, as I was reading about this uh, in your work, I was thinking, you know, you could look at these journeys as being a kind of biblical tourism. As you mentioned, like, hey, I just saw the place where Jesus was born. But then there are these other things that start getting attached to it, like uh, a way of purification. or And then you write about, like, yeah, well there's also you you go to a place and there are bones of the saints there or you have relics. So, could you talk about the different things that attracted people to, you know, on these journeys?
2: Well, and I think there's pilgrimage to cleanse yourself, right? There's there's the new awareness of I need I need purification. Perhaps there's a big offense in there. Um you think about somebody like around Thomas of Beckett's murder and the idea of walking barefoot to Canterbury Cathedral so as to expiate your sin around that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a small pilgrimage, but it it's got that purification element. But if you think about pilgrimage to sites, particularly where they're like Saints bones, mm-hmm. it's a it's also a wish fulfillment journey. It's a sense that I would like, this to happen. Mm. So pilgrims who want a child, who need, in the case of St. Foy in Conk, um St. Faith, who was a third century child martyr, but what she becomes associated with is the freeing of prisoners. And so in fact, prisoners would either come after having been liberated to give her their shackles wow. um so uh, a devotional act to say thank you mm-hmm. or people would come and pray for someone else's release and so you know the sense that the saint could fulfill those promises um the great thing about saint faith is there's there's all this sort of written material around her and She's got a character. She becomes a real person in a way, in the imagination of pilgrims. So, for instance, um, there are fabulous stories of female pilgrims who vow to give a ring and then change their mind. And Saint Faith appears to them and says, you know, you promised the ring, you should give it Uh up. And that the saint wants things out of the pilgrims.
1: Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. I was wondering, you know, as these pilgrimages become more and more difficult, let's say, as the Roman Empire is breaking down, you talked about local sites of pilgrimage, which are maybe less expensive, or you need less time. But then there are these other things that get done, too, that you that you write about, like, the the shape of the architecture of these shrines. Right. Can you talk about?
2: So, for instance, one of the things that happens, and I prepared for this question. <laughs> um, so if you think about, all right, let's talk about the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem. This amazing site, the site of the resurrection, mm-hmm. and you get, um, you get a round Roman-style shrine building built up around it. Um, and suddenly, the idea of the Holy Sepulchre becomes, you know, when people write about going, they write, they don't measure it out. They tell you, you know, it's round. Um, they tell you, maybe they might tell you there are eight pillars and 12 columns, which in itself is building on number significance, Mm. right? The numerology of eight as a rebirth number, seven days, and then we start over again. And suddenly, all of these buildings become kind of, if we build a round building, we will associate it, kind of connect it in physical form with the Holy Sepulchre itself. So St. Michael at Fulda um, which is built in the 9th century. Paderborn, which is built in the 11th. Um, St. Benigna, which is in Dijon, also 11th century.
1: So these are all European, yeah, European, European shrines. European sites. Yeah.
2: Santo Stefano in Bologna, um, which is a 12th century building. Um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Cambridge, England, 1120, they're all round buildings. And the whole idea is – if I can connect it visually to the site, then there's there's a mini transformation transportation that takes you to that spot.
1: Do you think the, the Middle Ages is such an interesting period, I think, and for me especially, because it feels like people were thinking about things in a fundamentally different way than they are in the 19th and 20th century where I hang out. and. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Do you think that pilgrims who are going to Dijon, for example, are looking at the round, the rotunda, and thinking, hey, eh, holy sepulcher, that's cool? Or does it go deeper than that? You know, I, I know that in the Middle Ages, people feel like it's not just symbolism, for example, that there's power in objects.
2: I think, I think there's an actual encouragement. To think of that as powerful. So our average person going to the site may not have been encouraged to sort of really go more than, hey, Holy Sepulchre reference, you know. But in fact, I mean, I think we talk a lot about that there were tours at places like Chart where people were there to kind of explain the imagery of what they were seeing, the monks were there, the school was there to kind of say, hey, you've come to short to see the relics of the Virgin Mary. Let's talk a little bit about the incarnation of Christ that you're seeing here right on the front door to kind of prompt you into seeing things deeper. And I think, I suspect that there was very much a sense in which hierarchy encouraged teaching that way, Mm. teaching about symbolism as a thing that really could connect you to these deeper moments, Mm -hmm. that it's not just a story, but a story that you're part of.
1: And then there were also relics, right? And reliquaries where there were objects that you could go and access, or touch, or maybe even take home. I mean, people.
2: well, and in fact, uh, if you think about pilgrimage badges, there's a whole industry around making pilgrimage badges. They're usually, they're often lead, but you know, soft, easy, malleable. You can can really play with making a lead thing. And of course, for an average person, you shell out a few dollars for a lead remembrance that you then take home. And these often had pictures of the shrine. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So particularly like at Canterbury, the shrine of St. Thomas and Becket, where pilgrims might look to be healed by actually touching the shrine or drinking water that was passed through the shrine, which I find a disgusting idea in my <laughs> 19th, 20th century uh, knowledge of science. But this idea that you could bring home a what's effectively a fridge magnet, right? It's, it's, it's a thing yeah. that you have that then reminds you. And of course, they came in all different values. So you could come home with a little tiny thing, mm-hmm. or you could come home with... With a canteen made of silver and brass that contained water from the Red Sea. You know, this sense of really having an elaborate relic that became your touchstone. Mm. So, in addition to being able to like have the experience, there is a tourist industry, a pilgrimage industry around hotels to stay in. If you look at the the Santiago de Compostela books, the the mm. Root of St. James. In northern Spain. Right. Um, there's a sense of, you know, stay here because the water is good. Watch out for bandits along this section of the road. There's very much a sense of an industry that supports that, but an industry that also wants you to be able to take home an element of significant experience. Yeah. and.
1: And I've also found very interesting in the reading set uh, I was looking at that there's a, like, in the structure of the labyrinth, what were these things? Yeah,
2: Labyrinths don't really show up until a little bit later, um, 13th century or so. Mm -hmm. Um, What I find really interesting about the labyrinth, I mean, so traditionally we've sort of said, okay, well, architects use them to mark things um, so the labyrinth at Chartres, for instance, has the names of the architects in the labyrinth. And, of course, the connection to labyrinths and Daedalus as the you know archetypal architect.
1: Are these actual mazes or are they they're like tiles? The, they're or? tiles
2: on the floor for the most part. Um, now, 20th century designers have sort of tried to make them a little more three-dimensional, but largely they're tiles on the floor. And the idea is that you're, of course, following the path back and forth. And certainly this idea of mimesis and imitatio, this idea of imitating and being physically in that space, the path element is supposed to make you think about traveling getting to the center and getting back out again.
1: So pilgrims would go to Chartres or these other places and then walk the labyrinth, walk the labyrinth. as a part of their journey.
2: And in fact, modern Christians, there are copies of the labyrinth at Chart. So for instance, I did one at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco where what they did was lay out a fabric painted copy of the labyrinth and you experience – I'm not sure whether you experience Chartres itself in that translation into the Episcopal space, or whether what you're supposed to do is go a little further and do, you know, the idea of a spiritual journey. Modern Christians are a little bit more uncomfortable saying, okay, this is what you're supposed to experience. Mm -hmm. They're more comfortable saying, okay, you know, walk, pray you know, center yourself in the experience, but they're not comfortable saying, you know, and here you are at Chartres. Um, But I think for medieval Christians, that was a real, it was a physical connection um, that you were supposed to sort of think about being in that space.
1: Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk just for a minute about what it's like for you to be uh, an art historian of the Middle Ages and you know, I know you work particularly on baptismal fonts. But I think, you know, getting back to what I said earlier, it seems so different from the 19th and the 20th century. I know in the history of science, medieval historians feel like they don't get enough love. I mean, it's all (laughs) 19th and 20th century panels. and, And I was wondering, I guess, first, is that similar in art history? Is there, you know, an emphasis on more modern times versus older times. And then, like, secondly, what attracted you to this very kind of weird period in a certain way?
2: I think it is true that medievalists feel that we don't get quite enough love. We actually have instituted a Hug a Medievalist Day, (laughs) um, which is uh, making grounds and uh, the idea that, you know, we should get more attention and more love. I think for me, what is wonderful about the Middle Ages is that everything comes together. You can talk about religion as a structure that also has an economic component, that also has a social component. You can talk about inclusion and exclusion in terms of sociological terms, and that they're a little more open about the fact that they live in this experience of in versus out. Um, So for me, I think it's really interesting to think about how, how space and how experience really sort of define medieval folks and that they can sort of say, you know, oh, the Jews, well, we we tolerate them, but, you know, we're also not tolerating mm-hmm. them. And that where they come in contact with other groups, there's very much a, a rawness and an openness that I find really interesting. Now, you could argue that that means that their racism and um, misogyny and everything else, it, their intolerance is right there on the surface. Uh,
1: so you're saying, in a sense, they're in, in many areas, they're so provincial, they're brutally honest about what they...
2: Right. And I find interesting also the the sense in which they want to believe in certain fictions. They want to believe in a fiction of an imminent resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's a motivation. It's not the only motivation that's going on, but this sense of bringing about a world of God and using that as Mm -hmm. an active part of what you do or don't do. Do you get
1: get a sense from these people who you're talking about as being, in many cases, extremely provincial? They grew up in a little tiny part of Germany or France.
2: And they never leave it.
1: (laughs) And then some of them go, actually make it to Jerusalem. And is there evidence that these journeys changed them? I mean, is there any writing about them that the, the things that they've seen really affect them?
2: So there is a little bit of writing about the experience of how things changed them. It tends to be a lot of what I saw, mm-hmm. um, and there is a marveling at you know how much bigger the world is mm-hmm. than you expected. There isn't a reflective sense in which, you know, I've met actual Muslims and now I feel differently about that experience. Mm-hmm. And if you think, I think too, if you think about pilgrimages that are not Christian, for instance, like the Hajj, there's a sense in which pilgrimage draws me closer to my people mm-hmm. and not closer to understanding the big world.
1: The world. I was also thinking when you were talking that, in a way, the conventions of writing like that, to write about interior experience, wow, I feel so different. That's like a very Renaissance-type thing to write about, isn't it?
2: It is. And why would you write about your interior experience if the motivation for your experience is exterior, to feel the experience of that space. What you want to recreate for somebody who hasn't been there in your writing is as much, how could you see what I've seen? So I'm going to tell you about the places so that you can experience them too. Getting
1: to this idea of interior, exterior, I was thinking – I'm sure some of these pilgrims, maybe even at the very beginning, were about soul cleansing. But I would imagine that some people were like, I'm going to get my relic, I'm going to get my badge, my bishop's going to give me an indulgence, and I'm set. Was there any kind of conflict uh, among members of the church about this issue of, like, why are you doing this?
2: Well, I think, so particularly, you know, that's going to take you back to Crusade's really uh, powerfully. Of course, these guys are all second sons. I think the church is very careful to promote a message of this is why you're doing it. You may have other reasons. But of course, the ceremony that goes with setting out on pilgrimage the reception of a pilgrim's cross or a scallop shell for saint james in in spain the idea that you are marked as a pilgrim let's set the tone before anybody goes out this is not about plundering this is about you know plundering you may mm. do but we're going to not look at that we're going to look at the way we're setting the tone yeah. for your travel um so pilgrims went through a public declaration of their pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the church is particularly good at setting a message of, okay, folks, this is why we go on pilgrimage. You may be enjoying the travel and what it gets you. (laughs) You may be enjoying seeing all these places and tasting spices and seeing new things. But don't forget, you are marked as a pilgrim. You are visibly a pilgrim. You've got a cross, you've got a scallop yeah. shell, you've got a, a staff.
1: There was an, a uniform of sorts, yeah. right? Yeah.
2: And that helped, you know, if you're wearing the physical trappings of going out on pilgrimage, you've got a, a tangible reminder of why you're mm. going.
1: Yeah, I was thinking when uh, I was uh, listening to you just talk about this, that what's actually in the mind of the pilgrim is different from person to person and their relationship to whether it be relics or interior states of mind, whatever. And I was thinking in a way there is a modern parallel to that, and that is if you look at people who climb mountains or, or maybe people who do all kinds of different kind of extreme adventure stuff, there are the purists who are they're into the moment. And then there are the peak baggers, you know, I've done every 14,000 foot mountain in this state. And so it it made me reflect a little bit on this idea of how how close do you think these modes of, of travel or experience are? I mean, I know that's asking you to speculate a little bit, but like, I guess the question is this, is the pilgrim actually closer to us than we think, or is it a really separate state of mind.
2: Well, all right. So if you think about someone like Julian of Norwich or Marjorie Kemp, Marjorie Kemp's probably a better example, since lots of folks are second-guessing her extreme experience. So she's bursting into tears. Um, She is totally overwhelmed. She's in Jerusalem? I think she's mostly England. England. But she is experiencing these sights and overwhelmed by her experience, weeping, prostrate. And there are plenty of people. And of course, she's writing her memoir about all these people who are, you know, scoffing at her and not validating her experience. And of course, she always wins out in the end. She is able to convince them of the sincerity of her moment. I think that that's that's as revelatory of their experience is that they probably were modern in that sense mm. of you can't live in that spiritual moment all the time. Mm. I mean, there are people who are obsessed that way, but there are relatively few. I mean, many people are thinking, I've walked 20 miles today, my feet are tired, and I really just want to put them up at the end of the day. And then tomorrow, when we actually go to the church, I will be in that frame of mind. Mm. But the journey maybe is less spiritual getting there. Now, of course, that depends on how far you're going, how much you're leaving behind, what kind of preparations you're making. But I think I think they were modern, even if they're not writing it down.
1: Mm. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much, Fran. Thank you so much for having things. me. That's it for today. Our music was composed by Zabrat. Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for links and information to today's show. A special shout out to Gene Sorabella, who wrote up a great essay on the medieval pilgrimage. I've posted the link on the website as well. And if you want to get in touch with me, feel free to contact me at time to eat the dogs, that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.